Welcome back to Extra Crispy, podcast of curious conversations on culture, creativity, and spirituality with me, your host, Crispin Schroeder. Well, on this episode of the podcast, this is part two in a series I'm doing right now called Into the Mystic, digging into some big questions about religion, faith, mysticism, and the Bible. And this really came out of a conversation I mentioned on the last episode. Uh, came out of a little conversation with Paul Meany that started on Instagram live the other night. But I really wanted to unpack these things a little bit more. And uh, I'll be probably the next episode. I'll have Paul in and uh, uh, we're going to record, I think, Wednesday morning. And. Uh, We'll unpack these a little bit more, but I just want to kind of lay a little groundwork of some thoughts that I'm thinking on these before we get there. Before we get into the episode, though, I just want to thank our sponsor, Steve's LEDs, for helping make this podcast possible. If you are in the market for some LED lighting, whether it's aquarium lighting, horticultural grow lights, or you got some kind of custom project... Go check out stevesleds.com, and Steve can help you with that. He's got a fantastic LED light manufacturing facility just a few miles down the road from here, and he's turning out some quality stuff. So stevesleds.com, and let's go ahead and dig into this episode of Into the Mystic, part two. Thanks for listening. Here we are in part two of Into the Mystic. And before I get very far into this, I, I just want to say one thing. <laughs> I'm only two sips into my cup of coffee. So hopefully my thoughts are clear. <laughs> That's not really the thing I wanted to say. I want to say that when it comes to the types of questions that I'm digging into right now, um, I'm not a big fan of apologetics. Uh, I've been around apologetic arguments between scientists and pastors or theologians about the answers to questions of whether God exists or not. Um, I'm just really not into that. <laughs> I got kind of burned out on that early on. Um, I personally believe there is a God. I personally believe that every transcendent experience that we have in life, whether it's through music, art, love, relationship, our longing for justice. Uh, I believe that these are all um, pointing to an ultimate reality or, or their evidence of something bigger going on with us. And and I, I think 
I, I'm comfortable with calling that God. And so I personally believe in God, but I'm going to get into, but I'm not trying to do this in a way to convince other people to believe in God. I just want to lay out what faith kind of looks like to me and, and the reasons that I have, um, you know, when I look at it for, for believing in God. And part of that, as I'll get into in this episode, is experiential. So, but I, I wanted to make that little caveat before we get into things today. So one thing I want to look at today is how in the Bible there is an evolving understanding of God and also how each one of us uh, as human beings, we are always evolving as well. You know, the, the term for that would be human development. And I think that these are two important aspects to consider when we look at the Bible as well as looking at our own journey of faith. So I'll, I'll start with the Bible. Uh, in the last episode, I talked about how the Bible is not univocal, as opposed to something like the Quran. Uh, the Quran, the Muslims believe that um, Muhammad went into a cave and had these, was visited by the angel Gabriel and had all these direct revelations, which he wrote down as their sacred scripture, the Quran. Uh, the Bible was not written by one person. It was not written in one time. It was written uh, over a period of about 1,500 years by multiple authors, different genres, and each one of these authors had something different to say. There is a way that uh, I, I think we all kind of understand this on a basic level. If you are writing something... <laughs> Uh, an article, a song, uh, a book, you edit that book in such a way, you're taking the available information out there, but you're editing it in a certain way to convey a certain point. And I think we, we have to keep all these types of things in mind when we come to the Bible because it is a very um, complex book. But I think that that's what makes the Bible just so beautiful is that you can read it in different ways at different times in your life because it will speak to you in sorts of different ways. So, um, so it's interesting, like you look at a lot of Bible scholars believe that much of the old Testament was actually written down, uh, codified as scripture during the Babylonian captivity, which would have been about 600 BC. Now, many of these stories had been around, obviously, in, in an oral, oral tradition or had even you know been written down, uh, but they had not actually coalesced into Scripture as we know it. And so it's, I think it's an interesting thing to think that even though these stories had been around for many centuries, it was during the Babylonian captivity when they wrote these stories down in the Bible. And so that was really one of the darkest periods in, in the darkest period in the old Testament is when they were invaded by Babylon and Babylon took the best and the brightest off to Babylon. And, uh, and, and then there was also many, uh, there was the Babylonian exile, and then there was many who who ex went and exiled uh, down to Egypt. But 
keeping in mind that that's the context of how they're writing, it's, I think one of the central things that, that the the people who are putting the original stories of the of Bible down, one of the big themes to them that is standing out is what do we do when we're in, we've been kicked out of our land, we've been held captivity. And you can see that's one of the biggest themes in the Old Testament. So take the story of Adam and Eve. What happens? They're they're living in this land that God has given to them and and told them to be stewards of. Things go south. They get kicked out of the garden. You get up to uh, the story of Joseph. Uh, you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has twelve sons. One of them, one of the youngest sons, is named Joseph. Joseph is shown favor by his father and loved, and and this makes his other brothers jealous because his father, you know, lavishes him with this coat of many colors and stuff. And not the, to mention that Joseph has this gift for having these dreams, which he shares with his brothers, which kind of make him seem like a bit of an arrogant, annoying person to be around because he has these dreams that the, the sun and the moon and everybody's bowing down to him, including his brothers. And one day his brothers take him and throw him they're going to they're going to kill him but then they they throw him down into this well and they say well why why leave him here for dead when we could sell him to some uh Ishmaelite slavers who were on their way to Egypt so they make a little money off of selling their brother their dad is is in a rough place Joseph ends up being the slave in Potiphar's house things are going great he's ruling over everything that Potiphar has but Potiphar's wife has certain uh, unmet needs that she's <laughs> she's attracted to to Joseph and tries to seduce him and he won't have it and you know so she accuses him of trying to rape her he gets thrown into prison he's down in prison for years and years and uh it's his his gift of interpreting dreams which which eventually gets him out of prison and he interprets the dream of the pharaoh about a coming famine and so then he goes from being in the lowest place in society, a prisoner in a dungeon to being second in command of all of Egypt, leads Egypt through this time of, of famine and, and prosperity. And again, even a story like that, like both of these tend to be kinds of explanations for getting pushed out of your place. You know, one is, is something of falling out with God or God's order. And the, the second one is through evil around you. And again, as I said on the last video, the last podcast, the Bible often offers two different things <laughs> that, that come at truth in two different ways. So if you're looking at this from the Babylonian captivity, one of the main questions is how did we get here and how do we get back? Is this the result of breaking the covenant? Is this the result of evil around us? And so that's a big theme. But you can look even in the Bible, and, and several uh, several Bible scholars have pointed this out, that, that even in the earlier parts of the Bible, the Bible does not seem as monotheistic as it does in the later parts. Um, and part of this is, I mean, even when you look at somebody like Abraham, Abraham was 
a Gentile. You know, he was a Sumerian. And uh, he was called out of that. Interesting thing that, that here Abraham, a Gentile, was called to leave his place and follow God. And God would make a people out of him so that ultimately God could save all the Gentiles through him one day. But Abraham's family would have been all polytheist. And and you see a lot of polytheism in the earlier chapters of the Bible. Um, and this is pretty easy to see along the way. You can look at a book like Job. It's, yes, the 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 invitation from the beginning is to worship God above all others, but there is no pretending that other gods don't exist. And that's a big part of the story as well. But by the end of the Old Testament, you see that uh, Israel had become firmly monotheistic. Um, So there's an evolving understanding of God that you have going throughout the Bible. You have uh, even the writers of the Bible uh, at least when they're codifying it as scripture, that they they have certain questions that they're trying to answer. Um, and I think part of this too is just the evolution of humanity. You know, there are oftentimes I hear a lot of folks in the new atheist crowd, folks like Sam Harris, uh, blame religion for a lot of the wars throughout history and a lot of the bad stuff. I don't think the way that humans have treated each other, especially, you know, in wars and doing violent things, I don't think that has to do with religion so much as that's just the stuff that human beings do. I mean, we can look at last century and we can see that um, for all the, the religious stuff that, you know, that was not good, you know, terrorism and things like that, um, a good chunk of, you know, probably 60 to 80 million people were killed under atheist communist regimes. <laughs> so it's, uh, whether it's China, uh, Cambodia, Russia, and certainly, uh, even, even Hitler was not a big fan of religion as well. So I think what we see even in the Old Testament, though, is is a lot of these things that are very off-putting to us right now, they were common practice in that point of the world, but we see in the biblical story that God is is changing things along the way. So, so one of the, the famous stories in the Old Testament is Abraham goes to sacrifice. God tells him, I want you to sacrifice your son. <laughs> they go on a hike and, hey, pops, where are we? When are we going to sacrifice that goat to God? And where's where's this goat going to come from? <laughs> Son, uh, God's going to provide. And it's it's a very off-putting story in one sense. When we read it with modern eyes, like, really? Like, this dude was going to, like, kill his own son? Well, reality is child sacrifice was um, not a rare thing back in that part of the world. And you you might frequently consider doing that especially offering your own son, like that would get you the most points with the gods that you worshiped. And here we have a story where, where Abraham's about to do this. And then right at the last minute, God says, no. And that was, that was the last time. Like, like we never see child sacrifice in, in the old Testament advocated. Uh, 
and so God is actually, I think, using that that scenario, <laughs> setting Abraham up to change his framework of understanding God and what God wants. Yes, there will still be sacrifice in the Old Testament, but 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 this is all moving somewhere. And so when you, it, and and this is an interesting thing too that you have these two major voices in the Old Testament. One is the priestly voice and one is the prophetic. The priestly voice tends to dominate a lot of the beginning stuff. Um, this would be the law, the rituals, the rites, the, the things that they need to do within the religion. But you get to the later parts of the Old Testament and you have the, the prophetic voice, which is often contradicting the priestly voice. So the priestly voice would, would be like, you know, Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Also, the, the Israelites were commanded to observe festivals like the Festival of Booths um, or Pentecost, um, the Passover, Yom Kippur, all these different things. But you get towards the end of the Old Testament, and the prof- prophets speaking on behalf of God were saying, I hate your Sabbath celebrations. I hate your festivals, your new moons, all these things you're doing. Like God is saying, all this stuff that you're doing, I hate it. Well, dude, aren't you the one that asked us to do all these things? And 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 you know, God and God's answer is instead of just observing all these rituals and festivals, how about you do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God? How about you take care of the poor, the oppressed? the the stranger that is in your land that means a lot more to me so so we see this balance between mysticism and religion and i'll return to that shortly but then we get up into the new testament and the new testament story is that god actually steps into our world and becomes one of us and i i've shared this before but i kind of imagine a scene up in heaven father son and holy spirit where Jesus is like, hey, pops, they're looking down at the world, how many crazy ideas people have of God and, and wars fought over religion and and just misunderstanding God. And Jesus says, hey, pops, how about I go down there and show them what we're really like? And thus we have the incarnation. I don't know if it happened that way. Um, that's the way I like to imagine it. Jesus steps in our world, becomes one of us, God with us, Emmanuel, and Jesus shows us a different sort of way, which is a further evolution. And I, I tend to see the the whole story of the Old Testament kind of pointing to this this moment now that that we have with Jesus. And Jesus then says stuff like, uh, you know, he's asked, "What is the the greatest?" of the laws and Jesus says love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself he said that you know the the first law love God second law love your neighbor as yourself this sums up the law and the prophets Jesus is saying those hundreds of rules in the Old Testament uh, they're, they're somewhere like around I don't know 600 laws in the Old Testament. He says, all of that, everything the prophets was saying is summed up in these two commandments. And I love that 
because Jesus really tends to be more in the prophetic tradition than in the priestly one. But Jesus is getting down to the heart of it. He's like, the, you know, the thing that, that ultimately counts is that you be a person of love. And we see by the New Testament that this is one of the most dominant themes is love. Uh, the Apostle John goes on to write, you know, God is love. And whoever claims to love God but hates their brother is a liar. The truth isn't in them. <laughs> so this is where we begin to see. And, and even in the life of Jesus, the whole cross is, a, is an extravagant picture of the love of God. That, that Jesus lays down his life for his friends. So in the scriptures, we have an evolving picture of who God is. And, and and perhaps part of this is just that humanity is developing along the way. You know, the Bible is, is coming along at a time which is very near the birth of human civilization. And so you have changes happening within humanity, at least in that part of the world, um, that that are very seismic. You know, you've got empires rising up. You got technologies, chariots, you know, roads, aqueducts, all these different things coming along, governance, and you have an, an evolving understanding of who God is, and and it's on a trajectory. And so by the time we get to the New Testament, we, we see a very different understanding. And this is something that a lot of the early Christians really wrestled with. Like, I like this Jesus guy, but, you know, the dude in the Old Testament who was commanding genocide, like, I don't know about that. <laughs> but if you were living in the Old Testament times, that would have been the most common way to understand God. It was you were looking through a much more tribal lens. And this is actually a lot of the the... Um, conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees is the Pharisees were still very tribalistic in their understanding, which brings me now to the subject of human development. Um, several years ago, I used to write, uh, this is probably back in 2008, I used to write for a blog called Not the Religious Type that was headed up by uh, Dave Schmelzer, who was a vineyard pastor up in Boston at that time. Now he's out in L.A. working with something called Blue Ocean. And Dave wrote a book, which was a really good book, um, called Not the Religious Type. And one of my favorite parts of the book is where he explores this stages of faith theory that was developed by M. Scott Peck, the guy who wrote The Road Less Traveled. And in this Scott Peck puts forth this theory and and look, there's a lot of, you know, Richard Rohr has his own kind of one in, in a book called falling upward. There's another really good book on the spiritual journey called the critical journey, uh, which explores kind of a six part stage of spirituality. And this is a very helpful way of understanding spirituality in terms of human development. So stage one would be, akin to the toddler phase in your life. When you're a toddler, you don't have empathy for anybody. You don't understand sharing. You are the center of the universe. You will, you know, very easily throw a block at Sally's head and, and not think twice about it. You know, 
toddlers are like little psychopaths. <laughs> and, and stage one would be called the criminal phase. The institutions in our world that have developed for people that are stuck in that phase emotionally are the prison system. Stage two would mirror the childhood development, you know, when you're eight or nine, 10 years old, and it's the rule phase. You know, all of a sudden following the rules is a big deal. You know, you're like a little lawyer at that point. The institutions that have developed in our world that that really help people in that stage would be the military and the church. Because when you're in that phase uh, of just trying to keep the rules, you, you know, you need that structure. Military provides it very well, and so has the church traditionally. Then you get to stage three, which is akin to adolescence. This is where you begin questioning the rules. You rebel against the rules. And the institutions that have developed in society for that would be uh, the university systems. You know, So you go to university, and it's all about questioning things. At least it, it had been. You know, we've got some problems in the universities in the last few years, but uh, I know my experience of, of university was that that's where I first started questioning things because it's like, oh, wow, have you ever thought about this? Have you thought about this? And, and um, you know, really a lot of my deconstructing my faith actually began in college. Um, then stage four would be considered the mystical uh, part of the journey in human development. Um, and so when you look at when you look at faith along these lines, this is the point that Dave Schmelzer makes is that the culture in America has gone stage three rebellion. <laughs> uh, the church is still stuck in stage two. So it, it would be like an eight year old trying to tell a 17 year old how to live their life. Once you, once you're in your teenage years, you're not going back. <laughs> so. Um, but the mystical phase, the, the last part of the journey is, is very interesting because, and this is, this has been brought up by numerous authors, Richard Rohr, um, Scott Peck, uh, and even the writers of that book, the, the critical journey that when you hit the mystical side, when you've come through all your questions, you end up in a place where you may believe many of the same things that you believed back in stage two. But now it's not from a place of just trying to follow the rules. You're in a different, you're in a much more spacious place. So maybe salvation back then was just a, a matter of, you know, getting your ticket punched so you could go to heaven when you die. Now salvation is a holistic thing. You realize that it's, it's transformation. It's this daily process. So you can look at these different aspects. And now you believe them, but in a much uh, deeper, richer sort of way. And I think a good uh, picture of this in the New Testament would be the Apostle Paul. Before Paul encounters Christ, his, he was referred to as Saul. And he's basically what we would consider a terrorist today. He was there, he presided over the execution of the first martyr in the church, Stephen, in the, books of, in the book of Acts. Um. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a leader in that group. And in, in the book of Acts, it talks about how he's on, on the road to Damascus to go hunt down more Christians. So this was a guy who, his faith, he thought that being faithful to God 
had to do with killing other people or persecuting anybody who didn't agree with you. That was the the ultimate sign of faithfulness. And we see this in, you know, Muslim fundamentalist terrorist, you know, over the last few years. And that's that's basically Paul's grid. And then Paul, as the story goes, he's on the road to go persecute Christians. So he's very much in that stage two framework, right? He's very tribalistic, very much about his group and his orthodoxy. And then he has an encounter with Christ. On the road to Damascus, it says a light shines from heaven. He's blinded by the light. He hears this voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which is an interesting thing that Jesus equates persecuting the church with persecuting God. You could, we could unpack that later. We won't right now. And then God, and, and then basically Jesus says, go to this little town and get a Christian, a follower of Christ named uh, Ananias to pray for you. So Paul does this. His name was Saul at the time. He goes there. Ananias prays for him. It says something like scales fell from his eyes. And now he becomes known as the Apostle Paul and, and he never looks back. And so, you know, another 14, 15 years down the road, uh, the Apostle Paul is now planning churches, all these, these communi- communities of faith all over the Mediterranean world. So Paul ends up writing more about the grace of God than any other author in the Bible. And because, I mean, this is a profound, he has this profound mystical experience. He thinks he's helping God out. He thinks he's God's number one man. Then he finds out he's actually been fighting God. (laughs) And when he encounters God, he doesn't encounter wrath. Jesus is not like, Paul, it's time to roast you over the barbecue pit for eternity in hell. <laughs> no, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? <laughs> and and so, so Paul, in this moment where he, he's in, confronted with ultimate reality, he is found wanting he should be uh, smote. <laughs> he is not. He's shown grace, and he writes about that grace more than any other writer in the Bible. But you can even find evidence in the writings of Paul that his understanding of God is developing along the way, too. You know, when Paul, one of Paul's first books that he wrote was the book of Galatians. Uh, This was a letter to the church he planted in Galatia. And uh, and it's a pretty hard, pretty harsh letter. You know, he's he's dealing with people who are coming in after him, Judaizers who are trying to make these new Christians, you know, get circumcised and, and, uh, obey old Testament kosher laws and stuff. And and Paul's like, I wish they would just cut their own junk off (laughs) pretty harsh. But when you get many years down the road, some of Paul's later writings, like the book of Philippians, it's a very different tone. And it's, it's an interesting thing because Paul is in prison. He's on death row. It's a, desperate situation, but the book of Philippians is one of the most upbeat, loving, joyful, peaceful letters uh, in in the Bible. And, and Paul's writing this on death row, and he's writing stuff like, you know, uh, whatever things are pure and lovely and noble, think on these things. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, look, I've learned the secret of happiness. It's that I can do anything. I can go through anything 
with Christ who gives me strength. As long as I'm connected to God, it doesn't matter where I'm at. I've learned the secret to ultimate happiness and it has nothing to do with your circumstances. This is a very different place and this is this is very much evidence of the mystical journey. Now, all this to say, Paul doesn't turn his back completely on religion. He's definitely experiencing God in powerful ways and he talks about that. He even talks about, you know, uh, having experiences going to the the highest realms of heaven, and he can't speak of them, which is often interesting about people who have these intense mystical religious experiences, which I, I would classify as a lot of the prophetics, you know, the book of Revelation. They try to write these things down and communicate what they're seeing, but it's it's so hard that, you know, you come out with imagery of, like, you got creatures with four faces covered in eyeballs and wings and... It's just weird stuff. But Paul is definitely having these mystical experiences, but he understands the the point of religion too. And this is you know the, where I want to end things up. So we have the overall development of humanity throughout history, humans evolving in their understanding of God, uh, in their own morality along the way. And God is, is evolved, you know, God is working within humanity in that process, which leads to Jesus. And, but it's not just that you throw religion away. And when I say the word religion, I'm I'm just simply speaking of the um, rituals, practices, sacraments, uh, and and beliefs that unite a group of people. So, um, and this is why you know religion is important. Paul is planning churches. He's not just telling people, "Hey, man, just have this experience with." Jesus and just go about your life. It's like, no, it's important that you incorporate these into doing your life with other people, living with other people. Uh, because I've certainly seen over the years, there are plenty of people that get into mysticism and have no use for religion. And then they just become untethered. You'd look at them and they're just, they're on another planet. There are other people who've grown up in religion who've never actually had an encounter with the divine, you know, anything outside the ordinary and so their their religion just becomes very moralistic and just kind of dead and lifeless, which would be very much like the Pharisees uh, in the New Testament. But there, you need rules, you need structure, you need community to um, to ground you. You need to be attached to a history that's older than you. And I think this is why I still find so much comfort in the Bible, is that in for all the ways the Bible has been used in, in wrong ways. And, and even some of the parts of the Bible that I have a problem with that I think are, ah, I don't, I don't really agree with this picture of God. I'm a part of that story. And that story anchors me in a history with a group of people because ultimately, yes, I believe God is at work in all people. I believe there's evidence of God's work in other religions as well. But I, I don't want to just go around just saying like, hey man, like I'm just going to take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I think I need, you need to, to, to experience transformation. You need to commit to a path and that's where religion comes in. So you, you, you know, ultimately you want to experience God. We see Paul, that's the root of everything he does is, is this encounter with God that he had. But Paul is also trying to construct communities so that they can, have structure, they can actually integrate what is going on in the mystical experience. And as that happens, um, along with our human development, along with 
you know, just general human development, our understanding of God will change. The same way, you know, your understanding of many things will change over the course of your life. So when I first came to Christ, I was very much in the rules thing because that's the way you are when you're like between 18 and 23, you know, you're, uh, as a guy at least, you're all about your, you know, you're very uh, confident, but you have no self-awareness. You just need rules. And that's why the military appeals to so many guys. That's why, like, it seems like a good idea that a good deal that I'm going to serve three tours in Afghanistan and the government's going to pay for my education. Like that will only make, that will only seem like a good deal to you when you're like between 18 and 23, you get beyond that. You're like, no way. That's not a good deal to put my life in danger for that. But you know, when I was 20 years old and I came to faith, like my first couple of years, it was very much about the rules and discipline. But I get about two years down the road. I'm empty. I'm desperate. And I remember going to church this one morning and going, God, like if I don't encounter you, if I don't have some experience of you, I'm going to give up on this thing starting tonight. I'm going to go out and, you know, go to a bar and find a woman, go home. (laughs) And that morning I went up for prayer at the end of the service. And I don't even remember, you know, it was a very charismatic church. People like prayed crazy prayers. Nothing happened. Somebody gently put their hand on my back quietly prayed something. I don't even know what they prayed. I experienced God in such a powerful way. The next thing I know, I'm laying on the floor for like 20 minutes or so. And I'm having like this vision of, this was a true mystical religious experience. I'm having this vision of this heart that was torn in two. And God speaking about this horrible situation I'd experienced in high school, which was one of the worst forms of betrayal that I'd, I, that I'd ever experienced, you know, and just a very difficult, you know, first love relationship and showing me that, that in that relationship, I had made the decision from that point on that I was never going to trust another person again. And I didn't, especially a woman, <laughs> Uh, but I was applying that even to God. And so I'm having this, I, I didn't know anything about psychotherapy or dealing with, you know, past issues. I I was like, you know, maybe 22, maybe 23 when this happened, probably 23. And anyway, I have this vision that, that my heart's torn into. I see these hands of Jesus on the cross and they come off the cross and he grabs my heart, holds it together. And then opens up his hands and my heart is is back together and he gives it back to me. And anyway, it's the weirdest thing. And I know it sounds strange even as I'm saying it, but that was my experience. And I get up after 20 minutes and I felt intoxicated. It was a fall day, but the colors were popping. I mean, I, I had to have somebody drive me home. Craziest thing. It was life-changing. <laughs> um, but for the first time in my life, I'd really experienced God in a powerful and profound way. And that feeling of change stuck with me for, I mean, there were, there were certain things that were changed for good, but I mean, I felt like I was on cloud nine for a couple of months after that. Now I ended up spending several years trying to get that experience to happen again to, to no avail. I mean, not, not at least to that level. Now what I've come to see looking back on it though, is those experiences are beautiful and they're important. Um, when you, when you can have them. And I couldn't make that thing happen. I wish I could. 
But religion, the practices of, of spiritual disciplines, of community, of coming together, of worship, all these things that, that are important in the religious aspects, that's important for integrating um, these mystical experiences into our life so that we can experience transformation. Because the experience itself may bring some change, but ultimately you need this balance between religion and mysticism to integrate those things into who you are so that you can keep evolving um, in your faith journey. Look, I was going to try to do this in 30 minutes, and I'm, I'm already uh, up to 40 minutes. <laughs> so I'm going to stop there. But this is part two of Into the Mystic. I hope uh, this stuff is clear. Um, I haven't even finished my first cup of coffee, so I may regret this. <laughs> See you on the next episode. Extra crispy.